competition for the top job. As DCI, he had served two presidents through seven years of war. The revelations of murder plots and mind-control experiments threatened his reputation and his livelihood. He was no longer seen as an apolitical public servant, but, in the words of one journalist, as a gentlemanly planner of assassinations. The prospect of disgrace, if not jail time, was looming. In April 1975, Helms testified to the Rockefeller Commission in the federal courthouse in Washington's Judiciary Square. As he left the building, he encountered Dan Shore, who stuck a microphone in his face. A supremely self-satisfied and self-controlled man, Helms exploded in a spluttering, spitting rage. "'You son of a bitch!' he screamed at the newsman. "'You killer! You cocksucker! Killer Shore! That's what they should call you!' Helms finally managed to compose himself, but his outburst exposed something the sleek former director worked hard to hide. Raw fear. In this season of upheaval, Angleton was honored by his employer. On April 25, 1975, General Marshall Carter, fishing buddy and former deputy director, presided at an award ceremony in the Langley headquarters. Bill Colby was conspicuous by his absence. Angleton's wife Cicely and daughters Siri Hari and Guru Sangat Kar Khalsa watched as Angleton received one of the agency's highest awards, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal. The honor was given for performance of outstanding services or for achievement of a distinctly exceptional nature in a duty or responsibility, the results of which constitute a major contribution to the mission of the agency. No one doubted Jim Angleton's contributions to the CIA were major and exceptional. In a letter to Cord Meyer later that day, Angleton wrote that the ceremony was especially meaningful for his family. He made a poignant admission of how little his wife and children knew of his professional life. In his 14 years working at Langley, he had never once taken them to his office. The occasion of his honor, he said, was their first and perhaps last visit to the building. Inconceivable Angleton arrived at room 318 of the Russell Senate Office building on September 24, 1975, anxious for vindication. In June, he had testified behind closed doors to the Rockefeller Commission about what he knew of spying on the anti-war movement, not much, he said, shading the truth, and the mail-opening program, uniquely productive, he insisted. He had followed up his appearance with the 37-page brief detailing the dire state of counterintelligence under Colby. He warned of the agency's mounting inability to cope with the growing menace of hostile clandestine activity. Angleton peered about curiously through his big glasses as the hearing room filled up with staffers in skirts, scrappy reporters, well-appointed lobbyists, garrulous lawyers, and interested tourists. Angleton watched the men on the dais in front of him. He saw Senator Church, Senator Baker, Senator Mondale, and the rest. He saw people coming and going, whispering, fussing with papers, adjusting microphones, getting ready, and settling in for the committee's second day of public hearings. The topic was the Houston Plan, President Nixon's abortive scheme to centralize domestic intelligence gathering in the White House, and Angleton was first on the witness list. Angleton wanted to challenge Senator Church, who was settling into his center stage seat as the committee's chairman. The two men had a common heritage. Like Angleton, Church had grown up in Boise, Idaho, and had come to maturity in elite institutions, Stanford and Stanford Law School. 
At the early age of 32, Church was elected to the U.S. Senate, where he served on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. As President Johnson escalated the war in Vietnam, Church turned into a war critic and not a quiet one. By 1975, he had served four terms in the Senate. An eloquent, some said long-winded, public speaker, Church lent his voice to the liberal cause of checking the imperial presidency with congressional power. Church opened the proceedings by referring to one of the biggest revelations of the Rockefeller Commission's report, the lingual mail-opening operation, which the commission called illegal and beyond the law. He added new details that his investigators had found in the lingual files, a letter that Senator Hubert Humphrey had written from Moscow, a letter that Richard Nixon had received from his speechwriter Ray Price, who had been visiting Moscow. The agency had even swiped a letter that Church had written to his mother-in-law from Europe. With that preemptive strike, Church asked Angleton to stand and swear that he would tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Angleton obliged. In a brief opening statement, he sought to identify himself with the mood of public opinion. It is the ultimate function of the intelligence community as part of our government to maintain and enhance the opportunity for peaceful exchange, he said. There was something anticlimactic about Angleton's much-anticipated appearance. The vaunted spymaster resembled an old man asking for his porridge, said one reporter. The senators wanted to know more about the Houston plan. Nixon's scheme had been abetted by Helms at the CIA and initially by Hoover at the FBI. The committee had found Angleton's June 1970 memo in which he sought to gain Nixon's approval for expanding the mail-opening operation. They had found his little lie about the reactivization of the lingual program. The committee's chief counsel, Frederick Schwartz Jr., asked Angleton to read his memo stating that lingual had been discontinued. Angleton obliged. Now, the sentence that says covert coverage has been discontinued is a lie, Schwartz went on. Is that correct? Angleton mumbled something. Senator Church took back the microphone and moved in for the kill. Wasn't it important, Church asked, given the turbulence of the times, that the president be fully informed about the actions of the very agencies we entrust to uphold and enforce the law? Angleton agreed. You have said that there was an affirmative duty on the CIA to inform the president? I don't dispute that, Angleton replied. And he was not informed, so that was a failure of duty to the commander-in-chief, is that correct? Mr. Chairman, Angleton protested, I don't think anyone would have hesitated to inform the president if he had at any moment asked for a review of intelligence operations. That is what he did do, said Church, exasperated. The president wanted to be informed. He wanted recommendations. He wanted to decide what should be done, and he was misinformed. Not only was he misinformed, but when he reconsidered authorizing the opening of the mail five days later and revoked it, the CIA did not pay the slightest bit of attention to him. Church had caught Angleton in his little lie and turned it into a big one. The commander-in-chief, as you say he said sarcastically. Is that so? I have no satisfactory answer for that, Angleton said. Angleton was silenced, church victorious. Senator Baker tried to bolster Angleton by asking if he thought some of the activities he supported should be made legal in consultation with Congress. This was the argument of the constitutionalists, and it was increasingly popular in Washington. 
Rein in the CIA, don't destroy it. Angleton couldn't quite bring himself to agree. The problem wasn't the lack of authorizing legislation. The problem was Kissinger's policy of detente, he said. My view is that there is complete illusion to believe on the operative clandestine side, which is, in a sense, a secret war that has continued since World War II, that the Soviets or the Soviet blocs have changed their objectives. When Angleton insisted the Houston plan was a matter of national security, not politics, Church was roused to attack again. He brought up something Angleton had told the committee in executive session two weeks earlier. Angleton had been asked why the CIA had ignored an order in 1970 from President Nixon to destroy a small stockpile of biological weapons. Angleton could have ducked the question, but he wanted to make his point. It is inconceivable, he replied, that a secret intelligence arm of the government has to comply with all the overt orders of government. Those were the most notorious words Angleton would ever utter. Under Church's withering interrogation, he tried to withdraw them, but he surely believed what he said. There was nothing shocking to him about the CIA doing its job. When I look at the map today and the weakness of this country, Angleton said, that is what shocks me. Angleton's ordeal in room 318 was the lead story on all three national news broadcasts that evening. James Angleton seems almost typecast as a counter-spy, rumpled, reflective, avid, a trout fisherman, said ABC correspondent David Schumacher. Angleton was barely settled today when the committee revealed his mail intercept program netted a letter from Richard Nixon to his speechwriter, the mail of Senators Kennedy and Martin Luther King, Jay Rockefeller, even a letter Chairman Church once wrote to his mother-in-law. On NBC Nightly News, Angleton was seen saying, Certain individual rights have to be sacrificed for the national security. The millions of Americans who had first seen Angleton tottering out of his house on Christmas Eve 1974 now saw an elderly fanatic who wanted to read their mail and insisted the CIA didn't have to follow orders. It was a debacle, and Angleton knew it. Angleton wanted to hear no more about Washington or the CIA, said journalist Ed Epstein. Angleton left for the Arizona desert, abandoning his prize-winning orchids and letting his greenhouse fall into disrepair. The next year, he went on a long, solitary fishing trip on the Mattapedia River in Canada. Legacy In retirement, James Angleton was a Svengali to working journalists. In early 1976, when the tabloid National Enquirer broke the story of Mary Meyer's affair with JFK, Angleton shared his account of searching for her diary with several writers, including Ron Rosenbaum of New Times, a muckraking monthly, Dick Russell, a freelancer interested in JFK's assassination, and Scott Armstrong, a reporter from the Washington Post. Angleton knew how to keep his secrets— he invited Armstrong to his empty house in Arlington and plied him with drinks and gossipy stories about Mary Meyer until his head was spinning. While Armstrong stumbled home drunk, Angleton then called his friend Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Post, and said one of her employees was asking inappropriate questions about extramarital hijinks in the Kennedy years. Graham, whose philandering husband suffered mental illness and committed suicide, loathed such loose talk. According to Armstrong, Graham then called Post-Editor Len Downey to complain. 
Downey saved Armstrong's job by calling him off the story. The Post never did a story about how Angleton walked off with Mary Meyer's diary. Angleton expounded his views to any and all who cared to listen. In long, liquid lunches at the Army-Navy Club overlooking Farragut Square in downtown Washington, he spoke to reporters, congressional investigators, freelancers, and friends. In private conversation, Angleton excelled. His conversation was compelling, his ideas original, his breadth of experience impressive, at least at first. Articles began to appear about him, and then books depicting a complex, if not contradictory, man. He soon became semi-famous as an intelligence savant, a literary spy, a cold warrior, the spy master who had launched the mole hunt and pierced the KGB's legend about Lee Harvey Oswald. Edward Epstein, a journalist who estimates he met with Angleton more than 100 times after his retirement in 1975, said what impressed him most about Angleton was he invented his own world, and not just professionally. He designed every piece of furniture in his house. When I went to visit him one time at his house in Tucson, he said, It's too bad you got here after sunset. You missed the wonderful view of the mountains. And then he drew a picture of the sunset and the mountains for me. The legend of Angleton, however, was not the same as his legacy. The legend was the public version of his story, as recounted by Angleton himself and by those who interviewed him. Harder to discern was the legacy of Angleton. The impact of his actions on the U.S. government and the American people in the years to come. The legend would be confused with the legacy, but they were far from the same. If anything, Angletonian mythology emphasized his compelling personality at the expense of capturing the full dimensions of his intelligence empire and enduring influence. His mole hunt was his most notorious achievement. Veteran case officer George Kizavalter said Angleton's faith in Anatoly Golitsyn's theories was a form of madness. Had there been a real Sasha, he could not have done as much damage to the clandestine services group as this phantom Sasha, Kizavalter told his biographer. The careers of many were damaged, and some were forced to leave the agency. Some of those maligned at least had the satisfaction of successful lawsuits settled with monetary compensation and the restoration of their good names— albeit many hard years later. Kizavalter's opinion was not idiosyncratic. In 1997, he received the agency's Trailblazer Award, recognizing him as one of the top 50 CIA officers in its first 50 years, an honor Angleton did not receive. There was never any doubt in Kizavalter's mind about the bona fides of Yuri Nosenko. Three subsequent reviews by senior CIA officers reached the same conclusion. So did Cleveland Cram, the senior officer who wrote a still-classified multi-volume study of Angleton's operations. So did Benjamin Fisher, a career officer who became the agency's chief historian. The Great Mole Hunt, or Great Mole Scare, of the late 1960s turned the CIA inside out, ruining careers and reputations in search for Soviet penetrations that may or may not have existed, Fisher wrote. Those who dissented from the institutional consensus about the mole hunt were mostly officers who had served Angleton on the counterintelligence staff. The Angletonians, as they called themselves, were a dogged bunch. Bill Hood and Pete Bagley asserted that the clandestine service was never penetrated during Angleton's watch, which is true. They also claimed that the CIA's operations against the Soviet Union were not unduly harmed by the mole hunt, which is not. 
Angleton and his acolytes would speak many words in his defense and write more than a few books. They cited scores of statements by Yuri Nosenko that they said were misleading or not credible, and indeed Nosenko had exaggerated and embellished, as defectors often do. In retirement, Pete Bagley befriended a retired KGB officer, Sergei Kondrashov, and helped him write a book that expressed doubts about Nosenko's credibility, raising the possibility that Nosenko's defection was somehow sanctioned by the KGB. But Angleton's theory of Nosenko's role in the KGB's monster plot asserted much more. Angleton insisted that Nosenko was not merely a controlled agent, but that he was sent to protect a source working inside the CIA on a daily basis in 1963 and for many years after. Which begs the question, if there was a mole burrowed into the CIA in the 1950s and 1960s as the Angletonians claimed, who the devil was it, and what damage did he do? The CIA learned the consequences of Soviet penetration in the 1980s when the KGB recruited FBI agent Robert Hansen and CIA officer Aldrich Ames as spies. American agents were arrested and executed. But even after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the opening of significant portions of the KGB archives, the Angletonians could not identify any CIA operations compromised by the putative mole. They could not even offer up the name of a single plausible candidate from the three dozen suspects whom Angleton investigated. After the passage of five decades, the likeliest explanation is that there wasn't a mole. Such was the most notorious aspect of Angleton's legacy. But while the mole hunt might have been foolish, it did not violate U.S. law or policy. Angleton's most substantive accomplishments did both. Angleton's most significant and enduring legacy was to legitimize mass surveillance of Americans. While his mole hunt paralyzed CIA-Soviet operations for five years at most, Angleton's lingual hunter program funneled secret reporting on law-abiding citizens to Hoover's COINTEL pro-operatives for 18 years. The FBI used CIA information to harass leftists, liberals, and civil rights leaders from 1956 to 1974. Angleton was the ghost of COINTELPRO. Angleton was a ghost in the domestic politics of Italy and Great Britain. In December 1970, Valerio Borghese, the fascist commander whom he had saved from partisan justice in 1945, launched an abortive military coup against a leftist government in Rome. When the coup collapsed, Borghese fled to Spain amid rumors of American involvement. Complotto neo-fascisti, neo-fascist plot, screamed one banner newspaper headline. The Italian parliament investigated the Golpe Borghese, as it was known, and found CIA money had purchased influence in Italy's intelligence services and non-communist political parties for decades. One State Department official says he personally assisted in the distribution of $25 million in cash to parties and individuals in 1970. For many years, Angleton had played a leading role in doling out such funds. He denied any knowledge of the Golpe Borghese, but the more general CIA-funded corruption of Italian politics is part of his legacy. Then there was the Wilson plot in England. Angleton's belief that British labor leader Harold Wilson was a Soviet agent of influence never gained much credence in the CIA or in the U.S. government but it became an article of truth to Peter Wright and other British officers who believed most every word that Anatoly Golitsyn said. 
In the early 1970s, Angleton's allies in London leaked secret intelligence reports to the Fleet Street tabloids, calling into question Wilson's loyalty. Wilson eventually resigned. David Lee, the first journalist to tell the tale, concluded Angleton, more than any other individual, was responsible for the climate of deceitfulness, paranoia, and mutual denunciation of which Harold Wilson became a victim. On January 14, 1977, Angleton got some good news. He would not be indicted for his role in the mail-opening operation. Without fanfare, the Justice Department issued a 57-page report on legal questions arising from the Church Committee's findings about the CIA's mail-opening program. The report stated the department would not bring charges against potential defendants who created and ran the lingual operation. Angleton's name was never mentioned, but he was the chief beneficiary. The prosecution of the responsible CIA officials would involve elements of unfairness and an almost certain lack of success in obtaining convictions, the Justice Department lawyers stated. While offering the firm view that the mail-opening operation would be unlawful in 1975, the attorneys asserted that prosecution of the potential defendants would be unlikely to succeed because of the unavailability of important evidence and because of the state of law that prevailed during the course of the mail-opening program. The Justice Department had to think about the politics of bringing a case into a Washington courtroom. Indicting Angleton would assure lengthy and difficult disputes about the admission of classified material. Angleton was sure to argue that he had presidential authorization via Dulles, McCone, and Helms. Powerful men in the Capitol already resented the indictment of Helms. Retroactive morality, the Los Angeles Times called it. The country was in a cynical mood after Nixon's disgrace and the defeat in Vietnam. Washington was eager to welcome President-elect Jimmy Carter and to put Watergate in the past. Discretion seemed the better part of prosecutorial valor, and Angleton walked. The Justice Department's decision not to indict Angleton set a precedent and sent a message that the secret intelligence arm of the government could reserve the right to review without warrant or stated cause the private communications of Americans in the name of national security. Angleton was the leading champion of this belief in the first 25 years of the CIA. He implemented it as U.S. government policy on the barest of authority, confident that any director and president would endorse his actions after the fact. With the fall of Nixon and the exposure of the full dimensions of lingual and chaos, Angleton's position became controversial and unpopular. Yet in the fullness of time, Angleton's thinking would prevail. The Constitutionalists of Washington emerged as the winners after the crisis of 1975-1976. The CIA had to submit to a new regime of legal and legislative oversight. After the terror attacks of September 11, 2001, the King's Party regained the upper hand, with Dick Cheney now serving as a powerful vice president and legislative author, Congress passed the Patriot Act, the government stepped up mass surveillance of Americans' private communications, now focusing on phone calls and email. Thanks to the January 1977 decision not to indict Angleton, there was no legal precedent against it. Angleton was a founding father of U.S. mass surveillance policies. To oversimplify only slightly, Dick Cheney picked up where Jim Angleton had left off. Angleton's loyalty to Israel betrayed U.S. policy on an epic scale, and his former colleague John Haddon knew it. In 1978, 
Haddon, the retired Tel Aviv station chief, made the long trip from his home in Brunswick, Maine, to Washington, D.C. He had a story he needed to tell to the right people. How Israel Stole Nuclear Material from the United States Government on Angleton's Watch The story of the great uranium heist at the Numec plant in Pennsylvania continued to attract official interest. Over the years, the story of the loss of hundreds of pounds of fissionable material from the Apollo facility had been examined by several government agencies. The question was whether the Israelis had used Numec to divert enriched uranium to Demona and then used it to build their nuclear arsenal. The CIA's scientists reviewed the evidence. Without judging the legal questions, they all agreed that enriched uranium from Numec had been obtained by the Israelis. I believe that all of my senior analysts who worked on the problem agreed with me fully, said Carl Duckett, deputy director of CIA responsible for technical and nuclear intelligence. The clear consensus in the CIA was that indeed Numec material had been diverted and had been used by Israelis in fabricating weapons. The Department of Energy and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission looked into the matter and found their efforts stymied by a lack of cooperation from the CIA and from NUMEC President Zalman Shapiro, as well as by a studious lack of interest from Capitol Hill. The investigators found no proof of diversion, but they did not have access to all the classified information available to the CIA scientists. When former NRC staffer Roger Matson managed to get access to the CIA records, he concluded that Numac was the only possible source of Israel's fissionable material. John Haddon said the same thing. A crime was committed 10 or 20 years ago, he wrote in a memo for the record, a crime considered so serious that for its commission the death penalty is mandatory and no statute of limitations applies. A good CIA man, Haddon never spilled classified information, never reported out of channels, he spoke only with the senior staff of the AEC or the House Interior Committee. He prepared 29 talking points to support his memo's conclusion, that Numec was a front company deployed in an Israeli-American criminal conspiracy to evade U.S. non-proliferation laws and supply the Israeli nuclear arsenal. If the crime had been committed intentionally and was not the result of carelessness, Haddon went on, then the circumstances warranted a finding of high treason and a mandatory death penalty. The only other explanation, he wrote, was gross incompetence on the part of those responsible for security in certain areas. It was either treason or incompetence, Haddon said. If one of those terms applied to his former boss Jim Angleton, so be it. Angleton had regular professional and personal contact with at least six men aware of Israel's secret plan to build a bomb, from Asher ben Natan to Amos de Shalit to Isser Harel to Meir Amit to Moshe Dayan, to Yuval Neiman, his friends were involved in the building of Israel's nuclear arsenal. If he learned anything of the secret program at Demona, he reported very little of it. If he didn't ask questions about Israel's actions, he wasn't doing his job. Instead of supporting U.S. nuclear security policy, he ignored it. Angleton thought collaboration with the Israeli intelligence services was more important, and the results proved his point, he believed. When Angleton started as chief of the counterintelligence staff in 1954, the State of Israel and its leaders were regarded warily in Washington, especially at the State Department. When Angleton left government service 20 years later, Israel held twice as much territory as it had in 1948. The CIA and the Mossad collaborated on a daily basis. 
and the governments of the United States and Israel were strategic allies, knit together by an expansive intelligence-sharing, multi-billion-dollar arms contracts, and coordinated diplomacy. The failure of the U.S. non-proliferation policy to prevent the introduction of nuclear weapons to the Middle East in the 1960s is part of Angleton's legacy, and its effects will be felt for decades, if not centuries. He was a leading architect of America's strategic relationship with Israel that endures and dominates the region to this day. He was, as his friend Meir Amit said, the biggest Zionist of the lot. The JFK story is a blight on Angleton's legacy. His handling of the Oswald file before the assassination of President Kennedy has never been explained by the CIA. His conspiracy theories about KGB involvement have never been substantiated. His animus toward those seeking to investigate JFK's assassination was constant and arguably criminal. If the evidence of his actions had been known to law enforcement, he could have and should have been prosecuted for obstruction of justice and perjury. When it came to the assassination of President Kennedy, Angleton acted as if he had something to hide. The question is, what? Angleton spoke for the record about JFK's murder on four occasions. All four times he insinuated the assassination of the liberal president might have been influenced by the KGB. I don't think that the Oswald case is dead, Angleton told the church committee. There are too many leads that were never followed. There's too much information that is developed later. It was a curious admission. Angleton was chief of the counterintelligence staff for 11 years after JFK's assassination. If there was any new information or any new leads into Oswald's possible contacts with the KGB, Angleton himself was personally responsible for investigating them. He apparently never did so. The documentary foundation of Angleton's KGB conspiracy theories was and is vanishingly thin. Yet whenever the JFK investigation turned to the CIA's pre-assassination interest in Oswald, Angleton stonewalled. The question was first raised during the appearance before the church committee. Senator Charles Mathias, a Republican Brahmin from Maryland, posed the question. To your knowledge, he asked, was Oswald ever interrogated when he returned from Russia? Angleton fumbled for words. I don't, probably would know, but I don't know whether the military, normally that would fall with the jurisdiction of the military, since he was a military man who defected, Angleton babbled. So I don't know the answer to that. In fact, Angleton did know the answer. The FBI had interviewed Oswald in August 1962, and Hoover had sent the report to Angleton's office, where Betty E. Gerter signed for it, and Angleton surely read it. Angleton also lied about his role in the CIA's schemes to assassinate Fidel Castro. When an attorney for the House Select Committee on Assassinations asked about his knowledge of the plots, Angleton hedged. The question I want to ask you again is, the attorney said, do you recall approximately when you learned this information about the Castro assassination plots, before or after the Warren Commission? I am certain, Angleton said, it was well after the Warren Commission had completed its work. Angleton was lying. He had spoken with Bill Harvey and Peter Wright in late 1961 about using nerve gas as an assassination weapon. In June 1963, he knew the substance of Bill Harvey's discussions with Johnny Rosselli, who had been enlisted to kill Castro. In July 1963, 
the counterintelligence staff had experimented with hypnotizing a potential assassin. Angleton denied knowledge of the Amlash operation, but he knew of at least four different efforts to kill Castro six months before the Warren Commission completed its work. Angleton was lying to conceal his knowledge of the Castro assassination plots. He had to dissemble because he had used Oswald or his file in the mole hunt. He also probably felt duty-bound to conceal his knowledge of the CIA's operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in the fall of 1963. All of which begs the harder question, was Angleton running Oswald as an agent as part of a plot to assassinate President Kennedy? He certainly had the knowledge and the ability to do so. Angleton and his staff had a granular knowledge of Oswald long before Kennedy was killed. Angleton had a penchant for running operations outside of reporting channels. He articulated a vigilant anti-communism that depicted the results of JFK's liberal policies in apocalyptic terms. He participated in discussions of political assassination, and he worked in a penumbra of cunning that excluded few possibilities. Angleton possessed a unique grasp of secret operations, Dick Helms wrote in his memoirs. Jim had the ability to raise an operation discussion not only to higher level, but to another dimension. Angleton made sure he could plausibly deny his monitoring of Oswald from 1959 to 1963. His admirers today can still plausibly deny he was involved in JFK's assassination. What cannot be plausibly denied is that Angleton's actions were illegal. He obstructed justice to hide interest in Oswald. He lied to veil his use of the ex-defector in late 1963 for intelligence purposes related to the Cuban consulate in Mexico City. Whether Angleton manipulated Oswald as part of an assassination plot is unknown. He certainly abetted those who did. Whoever killed JFK, Angleton protected them. He masterminded the JFK conspiracy cover-up. One achievement cannot be denied, Angleton. There was no high-level KGB penetration of the CIA on his watch. The Soviets ran hundreds of agents in the United States from 1947 to 1974, but after Kim Philby's departure, they never had an agent with access to the top of the agency. Of course, Angleton denied any such achievement. He insisted to the end of his days that the agency had been penetrated by one or more KGB moles. He had made sure it didn't happen, yet he insisted it did. He deserved credit, but he couldn't take it. About his greatest accomplishment, he was dead wrong. Such was the contradictory legacy of James Angleton. He was an ingenious, vicious, mendacious, obsessive, and brilliant man who acted with impunity as he sought to expand the Anglo-American-Israeli sphere of influence after the end of World War II. Like his friend Ezra Pound, his mastery was sometimes indistinguishable from his madness. He was indeed a combination of Machiavelli, Svengali, and Iago. He was an intellectual, charming, and sinister. In retirement at last, he was harmless. Legend In July 1976, Photographer Richard Avedon went to Arlington to take a photograph of Angleton. He went at the suggestion of a mutual friend, Renata Adler, a writer and novelist who had known Angleton since the early 1960s. Adler had met him in Washington through Jim's sister Carmen. 
When Avedon told Adler that he was shooting portraits of the American ruling class for Rolling Stone magazine, she insisted he include Angleton. Angleton's portrait appeared in Rolling Stone in October 1976, along with those of Frank Church, Henry Kissinger, Donald Rumsfeld, George H.W. Bush, Jimmy Carter, Barbara Jordan, Ronald Reagan, New York Times editor A. M. Rosenthal, and Washington Post publisher Catherine Graham. In Avedon's black-and-white minimalist gallery, Angleton had achieved something he had never sought. He was glamorous. Angleton rarely tired of sharing his ideas with journalist Ed Epstein, who was intrigued by his analysis of the JFK assassination. In 1978, Epstein published Legend, The Secret World of Lee Harvey Oswald, which laid out Angleton's KGB Dunnett conspiracy theory for the first time, albeit in unattributed form. The book sold well and was important in spreading Angleton's spurious theory of a super-KGB manipulating American society and politics. Angleton took to running reporters like he had once run agents in the field, and for the same purpose, to advance his geopolitical vision. He lunched often with Locke Johnson, a professor of intelligence history at the University of Georgia, who was working for the church committee. Johnson came away with his mind reeling. To paraphrase Mark Twain, listening to Angleton for a half hour could make you dizzy, he wrote. Listening to him for a whole hour could make you drunk. Angleton invited Joe Trento, a reporter on military affairs, to lunch and found they shared a taste for conspiracy theories. From Angleton, Trento came away with the appreciation that presidents come and go, but the intelligence bureaucracy remains in place as the real ruling class in our political system. David Ignatius, then a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, called him a character out of fiction. He was so eccentric in his hobbies and his personal manner that he was a work of art, a self-created work of art. He was too self-knowledgeable not to understand what he conveyed. The Hamburg... The way he looked out over his glasses, he was a piece of artifice. That was Angleton's first code name in the OSS, Artifice. In retirement, his life became the stuff of art. He became an iconic figure in the Anglo-American imagination, the paranoid genius as spymaster, fisherman, orchid grower, and spy. He was portrayed in a BBC movie about Yuri Nosenko. He figured prominently in a series on Kim Philby and the Cambridge Five. His career served as inspiration for a TV miniseries, The Company, and for William F. Buckley's novel, Spy Time. He was the CIA man at the heart of Robert De Niro's movie, The Good Shepherd. The most private of men, Angleton wound up as the public face of American intelligence in the Cold War. From Norman Mailer, Angleton was less a hero than an ambiguous oracle, a sardonic teller of bleak truths. In Harlot's Ghost, Mailer's biblical novel of the early days of the CIA, the narrator, a retired CIA man, has had a conversation with Hugh Tremont Montague, the retired counterintelligence chief who was based on Angleton. Bobby knows so little of us, the narrator tells us. The scene he describes took place not long after the gunfire in Dallas. Robert Kennedy, the grieving attorney general, confided in the narrator who later recounted the story to Montague. One night he, RFK, began to talk of muffled suspicions and stifled half-certainties and said to me, I had my doubts about a few fellows in your agency, but I don't anymore. I can trust John McCone, 
and I asked him if they had killed my brother, and I asked him in a way that he couldn't lie to me, and he said he had looked into it, and they hadn't. Mailer's story was based in fact. Bobby Kennedy did have such a conversation with McCone, the CIA director, in 1963. I told that story to Hugh, the narrator went on. You know how rarely he laughs aloud. He actually struck his thigh. Yes, he said. McCone was just the man to ask. What, I asked him, would you have answered? The narrator then relates Montague's reply. I would have told Bobby that if the job was done properly, I would not be able to give a correct answer. That was an Angletonian aperçu to educate innocent Americans. If the ambush in Dallas had been properly planned by CIA men, he advised, even other CIA men would not have been able to figure out who had done it. In retirement, Angleton stayed in touch with Dick Helms. He raised money for the legal defense of two FBI officials charged with COINTEL pro-related crimes. He still expounded on the betrayal of U.S. counterintelligence and the sham of detente, but fewer reporters came calling. He had visits with his most loyal acolytes, Pete Bagley and Bill Hood. He even heard from the reclusive Anatoly Golitsyn, who had written an opus on Soviet deception operations entitled New Lies for Old. In 1984, Angleton helped him get it published and contributed a laudatory introduction. Golitsyn explained predictably that signs of change in the Soviet Union in the 1980s were tactical ruses to advance the KGB plans first laid down in 1958. The Solidarity Labor Movement in Poland, Golitsyn argued, was created by Moscow to convert the narrow elitist dictatorship of the party into a Leninist dictatorship. It was an absurd description of an authentic social movement whose success in mobilizing Polish civil society foreshadowed the end of the Soviet Union itself. If the West succumbed to the blandishments of peaceful coexistence, Golitsyn wrote, a powerful, ideologically confident Soviet Union might soon dominate the world. Seven years later, the Soviet Union did not exist. By then, Angleton's reputation as a geopolitical seer had long since expired. The CIA, for its part, would decide that Yuri Nosenko was more credible than Anatoly Golitsyn. While Golitsyn lived out his life under an assumed name, avoiding all public contact, Nosenko remained a consultant for the CIA into the 21st century. In early 2001, Nosenko was invited to give a talk in the agency's auditorium about his experience handling the Oswald file for the KGB. The crowd of CIA employees listened with rapt attention and gave him a round of applause when he was done. In 1986, Angleton was diagnosed with lung cancer and finally had to give up cigarettes. When he and Cicely had dinner with Dick Helms and his wife, Helms reported to John Haddon that Angleton was in good fettle, has forsworn liquor and drinks Cokes. Guilty and grateful, Angleton appreciated Cicely's loyalty. I could never have gone through this without you, he told his wife. He didn't want his final days to burden her, he said. He wanted to go into the woods on my own like an Indian and deal with the end of my life like an Apache. He offered reflections, leavened with feelings of mortality to a favored few. Fundamentally, the founding fathers of U.S. intelligence were liars, he told Joseph Trento. 
The better you lied and the more you betrayed, the more likely you were to be promoted. These people attracted and promoted each other. Outside of their duplicity, the only thing they had in common was a desire for absolute power. I did things that, in looking back on my life, I regret. But I was part of it and loved being in it. Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, Carmel Offey, and Frank Wisner were the Grand Masters. If you were in a room with them, you were in a room full of people that you had to believe would deservedly end up in hell. He paused. I guess I will see them there soon. He offered secrets, leavened with hints of wisdom, to his allies. He called up former White House aide Dick Cheney, now a Republican congressman from Wyoming, to set up a dinner. He said he had something he wanted very much to tell him. He never got the chance, and the future vice president was left to ponder what fantastic secrets Angleton might have imparted. Ephraim Halevi came from Israel to say goodbye. They exchanged political gossip and greetings for their wives. They understood they would never see each other again. It was an emotional moment for the two old friends, and Angleton met it with fortitude. He shook my hands, Halevi recalled. His eyes filled with tears and he gradually became calm. He said, Keep the faith. Angleton grew more stoic as he contemplated what he regarded as his own failures. There was a farewell luncheon with former colleagues at the Officers Club at Fort Myer in Arlington, where he was given time to speak. When asked if he wanted to come clean in the Philby case, Angleton declined to voice any feelings of love or betrayal. There are some matters I shall have to take to the grave with me, he said, heartbroken to the end. And Kim is one of them. Jerusalem James Angleton died on May 11, 1987. He was survived by his former mentor, friend, and enemy, Kim Philby, who would die in Moscow exactly one year later. The first memorial service for Angleton was held at Rock Spring Congregational Church, not far from the Angleton home. Dick Helms and Jim Schlesinger attended the service. Reed Whitmore read T.S. Eliot's East Corker, a poem that evoked the ambiguity of Angleton's profession and his life. Home is where one starts from. As we grow older, the world becomes stranger, the pattern more complicated, of dead and living. Not the intense moment, isolated with no before and after, but a lifetime burning in every moment, and not the lifetime of one man only, but of old stones that cannot be deciphered. The ceremony lasted less than an hour, and the crowd dispersed into another day in Washington. Angleton was buried in the same cemetery in Boise where his father had been interred. The obituaries in the New York Times and the Washington Post cast him as a flawed man with vision, a man who was betrayed by Kim Philby and disgraced by spying scandals, but never discredited and often admired. Angleton was fortunate that so much of his legacy was unknown or classified at the time of his death. Angleton ably served the United States of America for the first half of his career and escaped accountability for the rest. He has been condemned for his mole hunt, but he was only doing his job as he saw fit, and his superiors approved. The mole hunt was theoretically defensible, 
His flouting of U.S. nuclear security policies on behalf of Israel was not. He was never held accountable for suborning justice in the investigation of John Kennedy's assassination. He lost his job for spying on tens of thousands of Americans, but he never had to defend his deeds in a court of law. He often acted outside the law and the Constitution, and for the most part, he got away with it. He died in his own bed, a lifetime burning to the end. Seven months after his death, Angleton was honored again, this time in Israel. It was in early December 1987. On the side of a winding road in the hills west of Jerusalem, several dozen people gathered, most of them Israeli. They came to remember their good and loyal friend in Washington. Cicely Angleton was there, escorted by Deputy Mossad Chief Ephraim Halevi, one of the organizers. Cicely was accompanied by her daughter Guru Sangatkar Khalsa and her granddaughter Sadhana Kar. Both wore the splendid all-white garb of Sikh believers, which contrasted vividly with the informal Israeli attire of the rest. The crowd gathered around a black stone set in white marble, built into a rocky outcropping. It was engraved with tributes in Hebrew and English. In memory of a dear friend, James J. Angleton, 1917-1987. Among the celebrants were four past or future chiefs of Mossad, his friend Meir Amit and Amos Manor, and the upper echelon of Amal, the Israeli Military Intelligence Service. These were the men and women who had built the Zionist enterprise, who had transformed the homeland of the Jewish people from an embattled settler state into a strategic ally of the world's greatest superpower. They all wanted to pay their respects to the man who, more than any other American, had made it possible. He was a friend you could trust on a personal basis, said Yitzhak Rabin, now the country's defense minister. Later that afternoon, the same group of people gathered again, converging on a picturesque spot near the King David Hotel. Angleton called it his observation point, a park bench with an unobstructed view of the teethed rampart of the old city. On this spot, with his widow and daughters looking on, Angleton was again eulogized, first by the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Tom Pickering, and then by Teddy Kollek, the mayor of Jerusalem. We commemorate a great friend who saw Israel-U.S. relations through their most difficult period in the forty years of Israel's existence, Kollek declared. Cicely Angleton unveiled another black stone carved in English, Hebrew, and Arabic. In memory of a dear friend, James Jim Angleton. Angleton was buried in Boise, but his spirit came to rest here, far from the American democracy he had served and failed. Thirty years later, the Angleton Stone is still there, still maintained by his admirers, a modest monument unknown to American visitors and unmentioned in the guidebooks of all nations. Angleton's legacy is hidden in plain sight. This has been a Highbridge production, read by John Pruden, Copyright 2017 by Jefferson Morley. Recorded by arrangement with St. Martin's Press. Recording copyright 2017 by Highbridge, a division of recorded books.